Good morning, church. So it is really good for me to be here. Um, my life in ministry got its legs here in New Orleans. Um, I am a graduate of uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I was a student there. And uh, like literally, um, most of what I know of ministry is intersected with First Baptist New Orleans and um, New Orleans, Louisiana. One of the first church jobs I had was at Gentilly Baptist Church, which eons ago was a church plant of First Baptist New Orleans. And then, of course, um, my major was church planting, so all of that experience is church planting until college ministry. And then, uh, obviously, I, I was a church planner um, uh, on staff at Canal Street Church. And um, a lot of our ministries intersect with the ministries that we have here at First Baptist Church, New Orleans. And so I, I owe a debt of gratitude to a lot of the mentors that I have out in the audience today that taught that, that guy who thought he knew uh, what ministry was about, but he really learned here um, in, in New Orleans. And so the, the title of the series that you guys have been going through is Prosper the City. And so I snuck in and I looked at a, a couple of things that was happening uh, weeks prior. Um, and the passage that they gave me was Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. And one of the things that was really neat about seeing that is that um, that chapter 4 is where Christ himself began his personal ministry. Um, he, he begins in temptation. You see that at the beginning. And then he goes throughout and he goes to his own hometown. And the, the things that he, he says to the church in his hometown in uh, the verses 4 and 18 uh, is unsettling to some. He announces that he is, the, he is anointed of God to deliver. And in that, people were very pleased because he had this authority but then directly after, when he starts to exercise what he means about that authority, they're not very pleased. Because they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't, don't we know this kid? Who is, who is he to come into to our midst and to think that he knows what's up? And so it reads in these couple of verses, if you'll read along with me, I'm, I'm going from the English Standard Version. <laughs> and it says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of, of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And then, when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns, and some virgins say, and to the other cities as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. Father God, it is indeed an honor to be called into your gospel ministry. God, it is a glorious, terrifying, adventurous, painful journey. God, I pray that as I speak, that they not be Jason's words, but they be your words. That you would hide me behind your cross, that they would not see me, but they would see you. And that, God, you would be honored in what is presented today. That, God, you would, would, that all would know that as we are workers in your vineyard, 
that, God, you reign. God, you reign over cities, over towns, over villages. God, you reign, no matter what it looks like. And we pray, God, to give your name the glory and the honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, like I said before, my legs were here. In fact, um, the first church I was a member of in New Orleans was Franklin Avenue. I got here in 2008. And where did Franklin Avenue meet in 2008? Right here. Uh, so, like, the beginnings of, like, uh, what it is to be in New Orleans. And I, I'm, a, I'm a kid from a very small town. Uh, um, my two, one brother, but a country town. So all the cousins were brothers, too. I don't know if you guys know about how, growing up like that. Like, there's a row, and there's the Thomas row, and that's where all the Thomases live. And, and that's where the Thomas boys are. And that's basically what it was. I was a Thomas boy. Um, there was no necessarily Jason. As a matter of fact, mom uh, was, was prophetic, I guess, and she named me Jason and my brother James, and everybody called him JT. So I was just like, you know, when I went outside of Clinton, I started being JT. But... I didn't know a whole lot about cities before I got here. Um, I knew about towns. I knew, as a matter of fact, I was a 4-H'er. You guys, some of you guys know what that is. And uh, in 4-H, we study cooperatives and farming, and we study agriculture. And so I was like, I was versed on that. <laughs> but oh, uh, coming to New Orleans and understanding industry and understanding like why these buildings are so big, and why there's so much of a gap. Because I had family members that had moved to New Orleans when, um, from Clinton for industry, for jobs, better jobs. They didn't want to be farmers. Obviously, I, I didn't want to be a farmer. So, so my, my feet here in New Orleans came from that whole idea of I wanting to escape the town. So, but we look at cities. We're sometimes inclined to see only the negative narratives that come out of these cities. Um, some have said that the cities are a magnifying glass to culture. If you guys know New, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana well, and if you know Louisiana well, you know that things that happen in New Orleans happen 10 times faster than they do in other areas. As a matter of fact, I just moved back two years ago to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to my wife's hometown of Zachary. And uh, yeah, things are extremely slow there. Uh, <laughs> and it's a complete difference. As a matter of fact, a lot of what people think that I'm talking about in ministry is innovative has already been done here in the city. And so primarily New Orleans is situated, New Orleans Baptist is a unique location because anybody who trains here is trained ahead of the time of other areas that are going to go into. You see here in the city the culture that's going to happen outside of the city. The best and the worst of humanity and culture can be experienced here in the city. There's no doubt there's crime. There is rampant deviant behavior. There are all sorts of kinds of, of bad things that exist here. But there's also beauty. There's also friendship. There's also an overwhelming feeling of home. Like I feel this morning with, with a, a lot of the faces I recognize as I look in the audience, I feel like I'm at home. Because a lot of the roots that, that were the beginnings of my ministry started here. So, why, does, why is that relevant to what we're studying today? Jesus himself was not necessarily born in a city. Jesus was born in a small town, in a larger city of Galilee. And in that small town, everyone knew who Jesus was. But yet, Jesus knew a bit more about himself than others. As a matter of fact, he was 12 years old and he was already in synagogues asking like these probing questions. But who in the world 
would necessarily know that this guy, Jesus, would be the Savior of the world. So here in Luke 4 and 18 that I talked about a little bit, Jesus himself, after being tempted, after necessarily coming into the, um, the, the public ministry, he proclaims through the reading of the Scripture exactly what it is that he's going to do. And it says this in Luke 4 and 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who oppress, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That last line is important. You see, you can't necessarily have the content of the gospel without actually having also the scope of the gospel. You see, Jesus himself is the very embodiment of what it is that we are to be doing. We are to be proclaiming the good news to the poor. We are to be proclaiming liberty to the captives and recovery of the sights to the blind. But this last part, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's jubilee. That's freedom. Christ himself has come to set us free. And that freedom has a cost, and he pays that high cost. But what is he necessarily mirroring to these people as we necessarily see? See him high and lifted up. This proclamation that he is rolling out a clarion call that he is God and that he reigns. It's important for you not to miss that whole idea that this is not the first time they've heard this scripture. This is not the first time they've heard the scroll read. This is not the first time they've, they've listened to this very verse spoken. But he sits and he waits for the quiet. And then he speaks again. And he says, this scripture has now been fulfilled in your hearing. This changes the game, guys. It changes the game. You see, with all that we see in our cities of the, the violence and the, the rampant things, the deviant behavior, we have to remember that Jesus fulfilled the mandate for Christians to have victory over the city. He reigns in the city. How does he reign? Going back to the scripture that I was given, and that's probably one of my defaults, I am uh, uniquely gifted to preach the Bible. I don't really have anything else outside of that that's interesting. I could tell some stories, but you won't be interested in them. I promise you. <laughs> so what does God reign over and what does that look like? Firstly, God reigns over sickness. It says here in verses 38 through 39. And he arose and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her. And he rebuked her. He rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now, this is, this is a really kind of interesting kind of thing. You see, we'll read that, and we won't necessarily have a context. Uh, because we'll say, well, hey, big deal, it's a fever, right? But we're, it's sometimes because we're thinking in our 21st century mindsets that if you have a fever, you can take some aspirin or you can go to the doctor, and then it'll be okay. But how many of you are into, um, and this is a confession, how many of you are into ancient, like, um, movies, like some of the, 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 the early English movies with the, the looking at the kings and some of the early monarchy, like watching some of those things? How many... Okay, I might not need you to raise your hand because sometimes those aren't always, uh, yes, oh, I know you are. That's, you're the one who gave it to me. <laughs> 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 but, 
But what's unique about this is um, one of the things about sickness in the ancient early days is that it was always tied to religion. And so great health meant that you were blessed of God. Poor health meant that you were cursed of God. This was not different in the first century Jewish world. They had physicians. Luke himself was one. And he's using actually medical language here when he says high fever. We're not talking about just a, a headache. She is basically incapacitated. She's not able to work. As a matter of fact, if you probably got a high fever in those times, that was the end. That was it. There's no way to necessarily break the fever. What they would do is necessarily take like cold wraps and wrap them on you and just basically make you as comfortable as you could be until you passed away. That's what happens when you receive the high fever. You see, this whole idea of, of religion being tied to sickness is not even new about in the first century Judaism. Um, we see this back in the day when the law was in place. We began to see the new occurrences of forgiveness and pardon to the community of the Hebrews after they made a golden calf in the wilderness. That's when we see the first instance of God forgiving them of a sin that they committed communally. But there are also sins that you would commit individually. And they treated the sick around them as such. If you were a leper, you were placed outside of community. If you were sick, you're placed outside of community. You're basically alienated from them because what, what, whatever you did, we don't want it. Whatever, whatever sin you committed, we don't want it. Tremendous suffering. But when Christ actually arrives, he actually allows them to see that he reigns over illness and sickness in a unique way that they've never seen it before. You see, they've never necessarily seen an individual speak a word and sickness left. There's, there's usually ritual involved. There's usually some practices involved to necessarily to, to cleanse us of these sins. But Jesus himself, who is the author of life, just speaks a word. And in sickness itself, leaves. He reigns over sickness. This authority they had never seen before. They had been many people who had said they've been the Messiah. There's, there's, there's mentionings of different individuals who've claimed to have God's, God's heart, but there's never been a person like Jesus himself to speak with such authority. Well, now he's not over just reading a word. He's proclaiming the word and then following it up with activity from that word. So I'm not just saying I'm going to set the captives free. I'm showing you how I'm going to set the captives free. I'm not just saying I'm going to reveal, I'm going to uncover the blind eyes of people. I'm going to show you how I'm going to uncover the blind eyes of people. But it is all for a purpose. Don't miss it. We, in this church, in this community in New Orleans, can look around and see many, many, many ministries that help the hurting, that help the blind. But it's all for a single purpose. We want, as a body of Christ and as a church, to display to the world that our God reigns. He reigns over sickness. He reigns over illness. He reigns over the things in this earth that we are confounded by. Now, many of us, might not necessarily experience Jesus' healing words. But people know because of the presence of Christ in the life of the believer that Jesus is present. You see, they're, they're not necessarily fooled when they're in relationship with the church that healing just deals with the body. Healing does not just deal with the body. You see, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law. So when he speaks this authority in this word, he is speaking it with an unwavering faith in the Father. And when he speaks in this word, he uses this same authority where he heals individuals that are ill. 
In John 9, 1 and 12, it talks about some of the things we see uh, in the effects of sin when, when, God is, when Jesus is actually healing the blind man. And then there was this question of the disciples to Jesus, and he says to them, they say to him, who has sinned, his mother or his father, that he would be born blind? And the purpose of Christ is revealed. He says, it is not necessarily that anybody in his family was, was sinning or had sinned, but this has happened to him so that the world would see the glory of God. When God uses you, his church, to prosper the city through the works that you do here in the church, through the ministries that you do within the church, it is so that the world can see the glory of God. God, in, God gives some of us amazing vision and then gives us others an amazing ability to follow people who have vision. But it is all for a single purpose. It is all so that the glory of God would reign. It is all so that we would see that we are not God, he is God. And that we follow him and not ourselves. There are many people sick in the city today. And it's really interesting, too, when you go back to that, that reading. Simon's mother-in-law. See, Jesus hadn't even called the disciples yet. This is a chapter before that. And so he's directly preaching in the synagogues, and he's, he's banishing out demons, and the demons recognize who he is. But afterwards, completely after that, he goes to Simon's house, and he encounters Simon's mother-in-law, and she's ill. And they, they talk to him about this whole idea of, like, Jesus, can you do something about it? Because we know you've done some other things in the past, so what are you going to do now? So Jesus speaks that word, and he heals his mother-in-law. But what is her response to her healing? She serves. Don't miss that. Your healing is not necessarily meant so you can walk outside and just be healed of whatever it is that you're healed of or whatever it is that you've, you've let go of. And to show to other people, look, I'm well. No, your healing is for service. It becomes the very thing which God uses to bring other people to him. He heals in order that you serve so that others may know that he is God. How is it that you can necessarily think that God is making you special because he's healed you? He heals many people. But what makes it special is if you understand exactly what it is that he's done so that you can bring others to him, so that he reigns. Secondly, this physical healing of this high fever. This is this, one of the things that's neat about um, the way that Luke writes. He wants you to see specifically that this is, a, this is a physical thing that has happened. This is something that is tangible. People see her walk up and serve. But then this next part, he reigns over demon possessions. He reigns over the underworld, over the spiritual world. I have another confession to make. I am glued to the things of like extra scientist type things. I like, I like dark movies sometimes. I like to, to think through this whole idea of, of, man, people can be expelled of demons and darkness and God reigns and he's over this. Now, I don't do that too much because I don't, I don't get too out of the box. But it's unique to see that the scriptures are really key in how Jesus is, delivers individuals from demon possession. It's, it's, there's, some people try to find um, some people try to find, like, this happened this way, and so this happened this way, and so this is probably how Jesus works. And because the scriptures are so wonderful, it's never the same. He's never necessarily healing. He's never necessarily delivering in the same way. He wants us to know that no matter the way that I heal, that I've got the power to do it. That's what he wants us to know. 
And it's not just physical, it's spiritual. It says in uh, verses 40 through 41, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, sometimes this type of reading confuses me a bit because I'm like, the message is getting out, Jesus. These demons know who you are, and so they're trying to tell people who you are. But like, think about the context for a little bit. This is Jesus' early ministry. And so some know him, some have heard of him, some have necessarily seen the miracles that he's already done in the limited scope time in which he's done them. But not many other people have heard the message. They've not necessarily had the, the, um, the backstory of, of who he really is. He's not just this wonderful healer. He's not just this wonderful counselor. He is those things, but he's also this wonderful Lord. And so... When Jesus necessarily comes in his authority, his very own authority that comes from the Father, and he says to these demons by the laying out of hands, be gone. And then they, they confront him, but yet he says, no, I don't need you saying anything on my behalf. Because the works that I'm going to do through the people that I'm going to save is going to be a reflection of who I am. You don't have to say anything, demon. You don't have to say anything about who I am. I'm not, you're not going to get a lighter sentence. You're not going to get a lighter load by trying to proclaim who I am. No, I'm going to necessarily tell the world exactly who I am and display to them exactly what I possess. And so, these demons themselves, which sometimes are also a, a marker of a sin that has been committed in the community, the demons themselves have to tremble at the name of Jesus. I was thinking through this, this whole idea of this demon possession and exorcism. And um, when, when I was in seminary, I had a, a professor, uh, Dr. Damien Metuche, who actually was a member here. And uh, Dr. Metuche had uh, a spiritual warfare class. And in that class, he took us to all of the sacred spaces in New Orleans. And so a part of that tour was that we visited voodoo temples, we visited the synagogues, we visited the Catholic church downtown, and all of the sacred spaces, the, 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 the uh, I think it's the St. Louis um, graveyard off of Rampart, we went to all of those locations. Sometimes we're not aware of the spiritual darkness that is present around us. And it's not necessarily he didn't do this to scare us. In fact, we learned a valuable lesson. The lesson was that if you are in Christ, if he is your savior, then he has had authority over demons and people who are demon-possessed. And they have no power over you. And they have no sway over you. And that we as members of God's church must be clear to necessarily stay away from those things that can allow us to be influenced. Because if you are a, a Christ follower, if you are in Christ, you cannot be possessed, but you can be influenced. And it's by way of things that you present to yourselves and you bring it to your house. That's why I used to necessarily be, um, I used to not like, like when my mom didn't want us to watch certain things, but like in their own way, she was saying the things that go inside of you are the things that allow you to be able to have the, the, the patterns in your life. And so you, you stay away from things like pornography. And you stay away from things like bad music. Although, if you're an artist or a creative, sometimes it can be very redeeming. But it's not for everybody. <laughs> you stay away from some of these things because you have to necessarily feed yourself first with God's word. And when you are full of God's word, then the redemption story is painted over everything that is out. Because how many of you guys know that all of truth is God's truth? And it's truth whether you believe it or not. 
That's, that's, the, that's the thing about it being true, because it's, it's, it's truth. So instead of being cavalier about the things that are happening in our world, let's necessarily be focused that we will experience spiritual warfare, that we will encounter those things that are, other, that are spiritual darknesses in this world. But we are fully equipped because of who Christ is to necessarily dwart these things. Several instances where Jesus releases people from the bondage of demons. And in several instances, these demons are speaking truth about Jesus. But Jesus says he didn't want a demon speaking any truth about him. Why? Because he has the power and the influence to declare who he is already. That's firstly. Secondly, he needs you. How many of you guys know that there's a plan A of God displaying his message across this whole world? That's you. There's no plan B. When Christ actually came and died for this world, he said it is finished. And all of his gloriousness is inside of you. And the very fact that he himself came, bled, died, lived a perfect life, he displayed that whole thing, that whole who he was in you. And so now you are his mouthpiece. You are the very message that he necessarily has to give to this world. You. This is the thing that's really unique about, um, about ministry in a city like New Orleans. Because I said earlier that it inter- like this church intersects with many other churches. How many of you guys know that that's how gospel movement starts? Gospel movements cannot start denominationally. And then I was grafted into being a Southern Baptist, and I love it. I know we have a great history, and we like to tell a story. But movements of God, they span time before Southern Baptists existed and after Southern Baptists will be here. And the way that God works is that he wants his people to come together and intersecting in charity and intersecting in justice ministry and intersecting in mercy ministry is the way that God's message can come across. And this is where us as Southern Baptists can be excited because we don't do anything without presenting the gospel. And so that when we, when we intersect our lives with other churches and other people who have mercy ministries, then we necessarily bring our hands and feet to work, but we also bring our message to speak so that the world may know that God himself reigns over all the city, over sickness, and over demons. It's interesting. The dark spiritual forces are fully aware who Jesus is. I'm concerned sometimes that we don't know who Jesus is, the way that we treat each other. You know that we are known by our love for one another? That that a part of the display of the gospel is the love that we have for one another, that we come together and we minister to others together and we speak God's word to one another and to those that are lost, that that is a high display that God himself can do wonderfully, beautifully, more than we can ask, think, or imagine. I remember when I was here, in 2008. We didn't have a Ricky Draper who was the worship leader in 2008. We didn't have a lot of the the ministries that had been birthed through here in 2008 that makes this congregation look not like a First Baptist church, let me tell you. God is doing something special here. You necessarily have to see that God reigns over this city being in this city because he works through the people that are in here. And then when he brings individuals to him, when he brings those forces together, it is a beautiful display of his goodness in this world. All over this place, you see God's goodness. Third point, and I wasn't timing myself, I'm not normally long, says this, Our God has come to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
all of the healing, all of the deliverance is a foreshadowing of who he is. You see, this, this whole works that we do as Christians, it's a part of the DNA of who we are. So we can't necessarily separate it. Look, there are a lot of educators in the room, and I, some of you guys, you loved me in class. Some of you didn't because I had like 50 jobs. <laughs> However, one of the things that's unique about New Orleans that, that is not necessarily uh, the case in some of the other higher ed places is that you get, you get the academic, like rigorous, like study, but you also get the practical how-to. If we, if we only major in what is the right way to present the gospel, if we only necessarily look at the proper fundamentals, per se, of, of, of gospel, that message, good news, and we never necessarily go into the weightier things of the gospel, that's justice, that's mercy, that's God's love for his people. If we only necessarily read books and, and, and pontificate on doctrines in silos, I can't tell you how many ignorant conversations I had about Calvinism in seminary. And, and most of the students that necessarily would want to have these highfalutin discussions were not in ministry. They didn't have jobs, and some of them still don't have jobs. I'm from Clinton. I'm public school education. I don't know what you're talking about. I do know this, that when I was 13 years old, the message of the gospel came to me, and he said that, Jason, you are a sinner, and you need to repent of your sin, and you need to come to me, and you are mine. And then later on in his life, he called me to a ministry, and he did not tell me what I was going to do because I wouldn't have did it. Guys, I tell my students this all the time. I have the spiritual gift of chill. <laughs> my wife will tell you, if I don't have to do it, I don't want to. But the gospel compels us, those of us who have been saved by his glorious gospel, to speak about it, to talk about it. You see, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He didn't let this town catch him up into just doing the healings and the deliverance. It says here in these last couple of verses, since I read all the others. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Don't miss that. Don't miss this. Jesus, who is God in flesh, who is going to deliver the world from sin, who is fully aware of who he is, he gets away for quiet time, whatever you want to call it. He gets away from everybody else, and he allows God to fill him because everything else in ministry is emptying you. You got to get that. If you never spend time alone, not for the preparation of sermons, and I'm talking to myself, if you never spend time alone and you remember, like, we, like Ricky said earlier, you remember the joy of your salvation. You remember how you felt. You, you, I don't know if he, he came to you in this way, but, and, but remember some of the dreams that God gave you. Some of the, the, the visions he gave you about, about what you would be and where you would be. If you don't reflect on that, if you don't go back to some of the early journals when you really had these empty, fleshy prayers, but God answered them anyway. If you don't go back, if you don't do those things, then you don't get to this proclamation. Or if you proclaim, you don't have power. You see, Christ's power came from his getting away and being with the Father. He was intimately connected. He was intimately 
giving and, and, and being, being poured into by God so that he could pour it out to the world. This is important. And then the people still sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. And you see the same in, uh, in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, because it actually says there that the disciples come to find him. But he said to them, I must preach. And again, like I said, I did church planting, not New Testament study or Greek. So preach means preach to me. You have to speak. Use your words. The good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogue. God was not afraid of the religious leaders in this world. He was not afraid of these individuals. You know, they looked at him in a specific way because they didn't know. I did a study years ago on some of this, the, uh, the world, Jewish world. And even some today, you know they have to be tremendously gifted and talented to do what they do. This is how God confounds the world through Christians. Because if he had required me to memorize Torah in order to be considered someone who can lead and teach, I definitely wouldn't be leading and teaching. I, can, I, I think I would memorize Philippians and I forgot it. You see, these guys were tremendously gifted and talented. They were the, the le creme de la creme. They were the best of the best. They were the 18. But then Jesus comes, no formal training, no necessarily any accolades that any of the other people could see. They knew he had knowledge, though. And he even turns around, and he goes and recruits fishermen. You might not think that's a big deal. That's a big deal. I think MacArthur years ago did that 12 ordinary men. If you were a fisherman, let me like, let you know a little bit. If you were a fisherman, that meant you came from a family of fishermen. And if you came from a family of fishermen, that meant that you wouldn't do anything else but fish. But then Jesus pulled these guys out of fishing to preaching, to proclamation, to be in some ways in the same level of the rabbis in their areas. This is huge. Because he knew what his job was. It was to preach the good news of the kingdom. And the kingdom was a new phenomenon. You see, him coming on this earth brought the kingdom. And so he's actually preaching of himself. And then when he talks about this kingdom, this kingdom is here, but this kingdom is coming. And those are two different things that they didn't necessarily think about. So Israel always knew that a savior would come. And Israel always knew that there would be a Messiah to lead them. But they never thought that he would come as a servant. They thought he would come as a king. He's in the line of a king. Where's his throne? They were ignorant. They didn't know. They couldn't see it. He was always covered. But this whole idea, this good news, that sin that caused sickness, sin that caused possession, sin that brought families into heartache and pain and embarrassment, the good news is that he is here to overcome it, all of it. You know, it had been the job of the priest to cover the sins of the community. To cover those sins, you've got to know about them. And no priest, no scribe, no Pharisee had the foresight to see all that was happening in the community of God. All the sin. None of us, we don't have the vision to see everything that's happening. And so, a perfect Savior who sees 
all of the sins. Every last one of the darkest, deepest thoughts of your minds. And he dies so that you who are wickedly and dastardly, and if you had the choice, you would be no better than a thief robber. He dies for you. He takes on your sin on himself, and he has this, this idea, this theology, that if you would just accept me, he's doing all the work. If you would accept me, then my righteousness and the things that I have done will now be on your account for God. And grace and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. That's upon the salvation that you profess, that's throughout your salvation, and that is on until the day of eternity. Covered. That's the message. Christ is the very embodiment of the kingdom of God. He's born to die. He's the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Everything that they have been trying to do had been done in Christ. So this message of hope, of love, and in grace, it extends to all who believe. How does God reign in a city marked by violence, deviant behavior? Through those who believe. How does God reign? Because he's over the physical and the spiritual realm. How does God reign in this world that we sometimes are confounded by, that we even confuse, that we each other, we can't get along, but he still reigns. He's still good. He still covers us. We're his chosen. We are the new Jerusalem. And so one of the things that gives me courage is reading the Psalms. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I thought about, it's, it just kept coming to mind. And I would say, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll Google Scripture if I got an idea of where it comes from. But this one I didn't have to Google because we just did a series, um, uh, 21 Days Through the Psalms, prayer. Psalm 24, 7 through 10, automatically reminds me of the declaration that Christ gay, which came from Isaiah. But Psalm 24 and 7 says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be ye lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord God, strong and mighty. Who is this King of glory? The Lord God, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Christ himself has come to proclaim that the King of glory has come in. He is here. He is living in all of you who believe in him. He is reigning in all of you that believe in him. He has empowered you to be the mouthpiece of God, to not only proclaim the message of the gospel, but to live it out, not just the content, but the scope, all of it. And he's given you the power to do it. God has reigned over sickness. I know there are those of us who have experienced family members who have died of sicknesses that we prayed that they would be healed of. But oh, how great perspective is that we have a king of glory that has created and, 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 and started a kingdom that is here and not yet, and that those who die in him do not die because eternal life begins at salvation and never ends. We are in this kingdom. And in order for us to know that we, we have this God, we must submit to his will. A lot of times when I teach uh, students, I like to, to end this way. Now, we, we know that we have Christ through three simple ways. Because I'm not naive to think that everybody in this room has Jesus. Firstly, we must admit that we are sinners. 
We must know that Christ is the Savior of the world who has come to take upon the sins of the world. And therefore, we must admit ourselves as sinners like I did at age 13. When we ushered in a relationship, you must be, believe, that the Lord Christ, the Son of the living God, is who he says that he is. Hundreds of prophecies from Old Testament to New were fulfilled in this one person king. Believe that he had came to die for your sins and see, confess, confess that he is Lord and to admit that you yourself and the responsibilities that you take on and the commitments that you take on must necessarily be for him. Confess that you have sinned, confess that you have not lived for him before you, before you knew, you knew who he was. The more you know about the Lord Jesus, the more you want to tell other people about him. This is not a spectator sport. This is, this is not a world in which we, we can necessarily receive a salvation at a young, tender age and sit on it. No, you must speak. And then you don't understand the, the power and the majesty and the grace and the peace that he gives if you simply live for him. He'll give you those desires of your heart or he'll change your heart. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, there's not a time in my life that I don't remember the blood that you shed for me on the cross. All that I am all that I ever hoped to be is because of what you did on Calvary. God, we, we sometimes we get caught up in the things that are around us in our culture that are seemingly so huge. God, I pray that in those times that we get caught up in the things that we feel like are too big, that you would remind us of where you've brought us from and where, God, you'll bring us to. You've promised a place for us where there's no more sickness and no more death and no more crying. You've promised, God, that heaven will come down to earth and that we, God, will live in connection with you not bothered by sin anymore not bothered by death anymore not interrupted by the things of this world my prayer God that you would allow those in this room under the sound of my voice to know God that you love them and that you care for them and God you're with them in Jesus name we pray